Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So it's 2 Samuel chapter 12. We read together from verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his, in his, in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering amongst themselves and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. 
he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Well, Fred, thank you very much indeed. If you keep that uh, passage open in front of you, that would be very uh, helpful. Perhaps turn back a page. Uh, it's the beginning of the chapter, page 315, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me pray for us as we, as we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, we do want to pray for your help tonight, and we especially want to pray that as, uh, as we look at your words, you would be at work, and we pray that surgically you would be cutting into us, convicting us, exposing things that are hidden. Uh, we do pray that this would be for our good and to your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, back in 2009, in the, t- in the town of Six Miles, South Carolina, there was a woman called Tracy Nadine Ellenberg who got very drunk and stole a horse. Uh, she was stopped by the police for disorderly conduct uh, after ra- uh, riding down the, the main street of the town, uh, sort of zig- zigzagging around in a, a random and hap- haphazard fashion. When asked later about her drunkenness, uh, she gave this wonderful excuse. Actually, she said, I wasn't drunk. The horse was. Uh, which, when you stop and think about it, is actually quite a good excuse, isn't it? Because as excuses go, because if uh, a horse can get drunk, I'm not sure whether they can get drunk or not, a drunken horse with a sober rider would, be, would actually be quite hard to tell from a sober horse with a, with a drunken rider. You know, it worked quite well as an excuse. Back in the early 20th century, there's a psychiatrist called Karl Bonhoeffer. And he coined the term, it's a wonderful word this, I love this word, confabulation. Confabulation, if nothing else tonight, your vocabulary will have increased at least by one. Confabulation, sort of my favorite words at the moment. And he used that word to describe what happens when someone with brain damage or, or, or memory loss uh, for some reason, uh, what happens when they fill in the missing gaps in their memories confabulation. They sort of make, basically just make it up. It, just, it's, un, it's an unconscious thing. You sort of unconsciously make it up. That's confabulation. Now, in the, in, tonight in 2 Samuel, we're in the middle of seeing David, King David, doing something very closely related to this, what we might call moral confabulation. Moral confabulation is when we remove all the uncomfortable parts from our memories or our past, and we replace them with something more palatable. 
Uh, We reconstruct and present the past in a way that kind of suits us and makes us look good. Where I, you know, I'm the innocent party. I'm the one with the multiple excuses. I'm the one who's been calm and rational and reasonable. As Tracy Nadine Elberg said, I wasn't drunk. The horse was. Now David's trying to do this big time. He's, he's done some terrible things. He's committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba and she's got pregnant and he's conspired to have her husband murdered and now he's attempting to hide and reconstruct the past big time. He's effectively trying to say, I didn't do it. I didn't commit adultery with Bathsheba. The child she's just had was actually her husband Uriah's and I didn't conspire to have him killed. He was just, you know, a tragic casualty of war. But what we're going to be reminded of tonight from 2 Samuel 12 is that before our God, it's not possible, it's just simply not possible to cover up sin like that. Even for a powerful man like David, who would, I guess you might expect a powerful man like David to kind of get away with stuff like this. It's not possible. Confabulation like that, it doesn't work. It didn't work for David, and it won't work for any of us, as we'll come back to later. And we're going to look at this uh, very dramatic moment in the Bible under two headings tonight. First from verses 1 to 14, uncovering the scandal of sin. Uncovering the scandal of sin, that's verses 1 to 14. And second from verses 15 to 25, experiencing the scandal of God's mercy. Experiencing the scandal of God's mercy, verses 15 to 25. I hope we're going to see tonight that God's purpose for us in this chapter does have actually... You know, many parts to it. You know, as sin is uncovered in David, it means, of course, that we can no longer look to him here as a model, and in particular as a model of the Lord Jesus. Uh, his, his failure is going to force us to look for a different king. Uh, you know, one who can win the battle against sin, both for himself and on behalf of others. In other words, what happens here and what happens in these chapters is going to force us to look forward to the Lord Jesus in, in a slightly different way to how we've had it earlier in 2 Samuel. Uh, but we might wonder whether David's playing any further role than this in the chapter, you know, beyond pointing us to, to someone else. Well, of course, he is in a very dramatic way, showing us the depth and seriousness of sin and humanity. If David, you know, the great David, the king after God's own heart, the Lord's anointed, if he can sin like this and sin so badly, well, then it seems the problem of human sin is about as serious as it can get. But I think we'll also see something else. We'll also see how, as we look at the process by which sin is uncovered in this chapter, Sin in David is uncovered. This is going to help us see how sin can be uncovered more generally, in ourselves, for example, so that we too, like David, at the end of the chapter, can be humbled and come to experience the scandalous mercy of God. So, okay, then let's take a closer look. Uh, We're going to look first at verses 1 to 14, uncovering the scandal of sin. We're going to see here sin uncovered in David. You might say surgically uncovered by God's word through the prophet Nathan. And there do seem to be uh, three steps to the Lord's strategy for uncovering David's sin through Nathan here. Uh, Nathan says to him effectively three things. One, stand back and look at yourself, see yourself. Two, 
indict yourself. And three, brace yourself. We're going to look at those in turn. First then, stand back and see yourself. It's what we see in the first four verses or so of the chapters. The prophet Nathan confronts David with a story. Now remember the background to all of this. David spent most of chapter 11 in various elaborate attempts to cover up and hide his adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, It's a process of concealment that's kind of escalated out of control. And in the end, it just got really, really serious and led to murder. He was a powerful man in a powerful position. He was a privileged man. And uh, more often than not, throughout history, powerful men in privileged positions can literally get away with murder. And uh, more often than not, they seem to be able to do so without any hint of guilt or regret, somehow able to hide their sins, not just from others, but also from themselves. That's the, the kind of moral confabulation I was talking about earlier. As the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So that's the background, but, the, but David, David is the Lord's anointed, and chapter 11 ended on a very sober note, you can just look at it there, last verse in chapter 11, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So, verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. But the really interesting thing here is that Nathan doesn't just come up to David and say, the Lord knows what you did. Instead, he approaches it rather more indirectly and tells a story. Now, as it was being read, as Fred was reading it earlier, you'll have noticed it's a slightly odd story. There's a poor man uh, with a really quite and unusually close relationship with a little ewe lamb. That's That's the odd bit. And there's a rich man who needs a lamb to feed a visiting guest. But verse 4, instead of killing one of his own lamb, lambs or his own sheep, he steals the poor man's lamb and serves that up instead. Now, as I said, it's a slightly odd story. Uh, And at first, David doesn't really catch on what's going on. Uh, You know, we can start to see what's going on here, can't we? We can kind of see the connections, I hope, uh, between uh, this story and the events of chapter 11. The the poor man's nearly like Uriah. His beloved lamb is like Bathsheba, and the greedy rich man is like David. But David hasn't, for some reason, seen this yet. He hasn't kind of got it. And in verse 5, we see him treating the story uh, as if it's a kind of judicial case, a case study that's been brought to him, uh, like one of the many sort of judicial cases that would have been brought to him as judge and king of all the people. And uh, this particular case study looks very simple from David's point of view. Uh, The poor man has been sorely wronged, it's very obvious, and the rich man has behaved abominably. So you see what the story is doing. It, It makes David see his actions uh, from a different perspective, uh, as, a, if you like, an impartial outsider, a very different way to the way he has been seeing them. I do think we can learn from this. Uh, we can learn, I think, that one very, very effective way of uncovering sin in ourselves is to stand back and look at ourselves from a different perspective, from where everything is a little bit more clear and we're not sort of so tempted to hide from the truth. You see, we too, like David, have this capacity, an enormous capacity, in, sense, in fact, for what I've called moral confabulation. We do it all the time. In fact, let me tell you, as I tell myself, in fact, after every argument or row you've ever had, you have done this, okay? I promise you, you have done it. I know that I've done it. You've done it too. 
you've reconstructed what happened in your head or in the way that you've reported it to somebody else. And in your reconstructed version, you alone are the reasonable one with all the good excuses. And let me say also, if you're saying to yourself now, I've never done that. I would never do that. Let me respond now by saying, you're doing it again. You're doing it right now. Because I know that you've done it just as I've done it. And everyone's done it. So what's the way out of this uh, web of self-deception? Well, this chapter is suggesting stand back a bit. Get some distance. See it from a different point of view. That's what Nathan has done with David. He says to David, essentially, you know, here's what you did from a different point of view. It all sounds very good in principle, I guess, but how, how do we go about this exactly? Well, I think it is possible to an extent to do it on our own. You know, we ask, we ask for God's help. Uh, we, we attempt as best we possibly can to reflect honestly on, on things that we've done uh, without kind of uh, changing things in our minds. And that's what we're trying to do, I guess, as we come to, to God and, and confess our sins daily. That's, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Uh, but sometimes, it, probably, it is a good idea to get somebody else's help, just as David got some help here. And that will uh, probably require a bit of courage, a bit of initiative. On the one hand, the, the courage to, to, to be brutally open with someone. Um, on the other hand, the courage to, to, to ask some, some simple but kind of probing questions when that happens. You know, what, what were you thinking at the time? What, why exactly were you so angry in that situation? What were you wanting in that situation? Also, of course, the courage to respond when someone is clearly kind of making stuff up, confabulating, not to go along with that, but rather to take them to task, as Nathan does here. None of which, of course, is easy. And Jesus warns us very sternly that we can't possibly hope to do this with somebody else, can't hope to help anyone uncover their sin until we've been honest and humbled and broken concerning our own sin. But I do think it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if, if more of this were happening uh, amongst us as a, as a church family, if every person here tonight had at least, at least, you know, at least one person here they felt they could be honest and open with. If every person here tonight uh, were equipped to help in a situation like that, humbly and compassionately. Well, that would be a very good thing indeed. Uh, there are, now, no doubt though, many things that might hold us back with all of this. Not least uh, what comes next in 2 Samuel 12. Um, after this process of, sort of standing back and looking at yourself, our passage encourages us next to do something a little bit more serious. And Nathan encourages us to indict ourselves. This is uh, Nathan's intention, of course, as he's telling the story about the poor man and his lamb and the rich man who steals it. He wants David to indict himself. That is, he wants David to charge himself formally with a crime. That's what indict means. Uh, Jesus does a very similar thing with his uh, parables in the Gospels, uh, with uh, forcing some of his religious opponents to indict themselves, charge themselves with sin and crime. But the background to all of those parables is here in 2 Samuel 12. Look, at, look with me again at verses 5 and 6 
of the chapter. This is David's reaction to the story. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that land four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And you might say that uh, David's first reaction here is perhaps a little extreme. You wouldn't normally impose the death penalty for, for theft. Um, he gets it a bit more accurate, I think. Verse 6, uh, fourfold restitution for the theft of a sheep is exactly what the law prescribes. That's Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. But I think the, the main thing is clear here. David can see very, very clearly the guilt of the rich man in the story. And he's burning with anger. That's his, his basic reaction, isn't it? Burning with anger. And it's then that Nathan drives the knife in. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan then goes on to catalogue exactly what David has done. Verse 9. He's despised the word of the Lord. He's done evil in his sight. He struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be his own. And um, when it's all over, you know, and the charge sheet has been read out, um, David has nowhere to hide anymore. He just has to agree. And look down at, at verse 13 with me. Uh, there's nothing especially honorable about what David does here. It's just a sort of matter-of-fact statement, sort of inevitable acknowledgement of the truth. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's the kind of conviction that may well happen when we stand back and look at our behavior from a little distance. Suppose we're, we've done that and we're, we're looking on some domestic scene, for example, uh, we say to ourselves, who is that middle-aged man, you know, slightly whiny, with an unwarranted sense of entitlement, acting so petulantly, like a spoiled tyrant, snapping at his wife and children because they're not quite behaving towards him the way he wants. Who is that? Oh, it's me. Or who is that person gossiping so shamelessly pretending they're, they're being humorous or pretending they're just showing concern oh it's me well who is that person on their phone late at night doing something they really wouldn't want anyone else to know about fooling themselves that it's hidden fooling themselves that it's harmless fooling themselves that they've got a really good excuse because they've had, you know, a pretty hard day. Oh. You know, these are, these are hard things to do and hard things to face up to. But Jesus does remind us there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Better then, Better then, much better to uncover them now than have them uncovered later when things have got out of control or when it's really too late. These are the steps so far. Step back, 
and see yourself, look at yourself from a bit of distance. Then, indict yourself. And then, brace yourself. Now, says Nathan to David, face the consequences. David was in a privileged and honored position given to him by the Lord, but he has despised the word of the Lord. He's committed adultery and he's conspired to murder. These are damaging and destructive acts, to say the least. And uncovering the acts also means facing up to the damaging consequences that will inevitably come. That's the same with any sin, of course. You know, all sin is destructive. Uh, no matter how small or big it may seem, it's destructive and it will have destructive consequences. Uh, but David's sins, as serious sins, have pretty serious consequences. Verse 9. David killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites, so, verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. David secretly took the wife of someone close to him, but verse 11, this is what the Lord says, out of your household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I'll take your wives, give them to one who's close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And it's just tragic. This is, in fact, the sorry story that we see worked out in the rest of 2 Samuel and on down the generations from this point. It's a, it's a family that because of David's failure is torn apart now by intrigue, by infighting, by ambition, by violence and sexual immorality. There's a great moment in the, in the film Jaws when the, the police chief, uh, Martin Brody, is played by uh, Roy Scheider, if you remember the film, uh, a moment when he, he sees the shark for the very first time. Now, films about sharks eating people may not be your thing, uh, which is fair enough. But nonetheless, I do think it's a, it's a great moment in cinema. You know, you, when, he, when he sees that shark for the very first time, and, and just how large it is, and it is pretty large, he stands bolt upright, utterly stunned and backs slowly into the cabin of the the boat that he's on to tell the captain quietly, completely deadpan, you're going to need a bigger boat. And we're at a very similar moment in 2 Samuel. We've seen the size and scale of David's sin, how it's going to tear apart and consume his family, uh, the nation, all into the foreseeable future, and uh, we're saying to ourselves, we're going to need a better king. We're going to need a better king. Now, there's one, um, there's one consequence David doesn't face in this chapter. Um, it's very remarkable. Now, take a look at uh, verse 13 with me again. This is David's confession. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. It may well be that from this point on into Samuel, David's no longer modeling a great king for us, but he can model for us how to respond to the scandal of God's mercy. And this is our final point this evening. Uh, Verses 15 through to 25, experiencing the scandal 
of God's mercy, experiencing the scandal of God's mercy. I think we have to admit there are many things in this chapter and all the details that are are fairly mysterious, hard to understand. But I want to say actually that the biggest mystery, the biggest mystery is actually the, the one we've just read, right there in verse 13, when Nathan says to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. Just think with me for a moment what a huge scandal that is. What an outrage that is. After all, adultery under the law was a capital crime. It was punishable by death. Murder under the law was a capital crime. It was punishable by death. Conspiracy to murder under the law was a capital crime. It was punishable by death. David himself has admitted and confessed that he deserves to die. David has despised the word of the Lord. Earlier on in 1 and 2 Samuel, when Saul despised the word of the Lord, he was cut off and the kingdom taken away. So what's going on? How can this be? How can Nathan just say it? The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. It's a scandal. Now, just just in this chapter, there are no answers, really. We can't really see how this works out here, um, how what happens here can possibly be right or just. Uh, We can only see it as the Bible storyline takes us right through to the greater king, to Jesus the greater king with no sin, King David's greater son. And it's only as we reflect on Jesus' death on the cross that we can see how mercy and justice come perfectly together in him. And in fact, mercy can only ultimately come from the sin and punishment that David deserves, that we deserve, being carried by Jesus, born for us by someone else. So we are, we are pointed in that direction to Jesus by all that happens in this chapter. Though at this point, it, it is quite mysterious. But what we do see here is David modeling for us the right response to this scandalous mercy. I think we can sum it up like this. Just as David believed Nathan when he says, you are the man, okay, back in verse seven, so he also believes Nathan completely when he says, verse 13, the Lord has taken away your sin. And he shows that belief. Nathan shows that that complete belief in what Nathan has told him in at least three ways here. Uh, To begin with, if his sin has really been taken away, that means that David can continue in a prayerful relationship with the Lord. Uh, Here, it's in verse 16, for example, he even goes so far as to pray for and plead for something he's already been told he won't get. So he prays for the life of the child that's been born. He's been told that's not going to happen. But he's got this relationship with the Lord, so he prays anyway. He has that boldness, remarkably, to approach the Lord in that situation. 
Second thing we can say, if, if, if David's sin is, has really been taken away, then he doesn't have to sort of be locked away in his room forever, incapacitated by guilt and regret. I think we'd have to say that uh, David's behavior, this is over in verse 20, uh, when the child uh, finally does die, um, is, you know, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite mysterious. You know, he gets up, he washes himself and goes to worship the Lord. That's one of the things that's, uh, that's a little bit hard to understand in this chapter, uh, given a child has just died. Uh, but at least I think we can say that uh, part of what's going on here is David truly believing that his sin really is taken away, that it's not permanently hanging around his neck for the rest of his life. And then finally, if his sin is really taken away, despite all of the, the kind of brokenness and mess in the background from chapter 11, he can, again, really remarkably, love and comfort Bathsheba, verse 24. And uh, it turns out that David is right to behave in these ways and with this kind of belief. You see, he knows that if sin, his sin is taken away, then the Lord's love for him is undiminished. It hasn't sort of dropped down a notch or anything like that. And uh, we see that in what happens in his very last verses of our passage, verses 24 and 25, and David's and Bathsheba have a, a new child, and he's called Jedidiah, loved by the Lord. And again, I think there, there are many things that we can learn from what happens here. I think if we were honest, you know, we've been a Christian uh, for a while, uh, perhaps, and um, we do get into this state of mind where we foolishly think that we're, we're kind of being godly or humble, or, or maybe it's kind of good for us if we torment ourselves with the anguish of regret for past sins. That's a very, very common experience amongst Christians. Um, you might, you, we tor- or we torment ourselves by refusing to believe that God's love for us is undiminished. We sort of imagine that, oh, it must have come down a notch. It must be qualified now. He must really rather kind of dislike me now. But David helps us see that kind of, that kind of thought is not in the least bit godly or humble. <laughs> there is nothing godly about unbelief. There's nothing godly about refusing to believe our Father in heaven when he says to us clearly that in Christ our sins are permanently and fully taken away. And tormenting ourselves with regret is not going to do the least bit of good for us. Imagining that God doesn't love us quite so much anymore is not going to do any good to us at all. Much the opposite, in fact. What we find when we do that is just incapacitates us. We end up doing nothing. It holds us back. And it holds us back in love and worship and service. So this is the note I want to finish on tonight. That there are, let me remind you, two scandals in this chapter. The first is the scandal of sin. There's the scandal of trying to cover up our sin. The scandal of trying to conceal it like David did. There's a scandal of moral confabulation, you know, trying to remake the past. Saying like uh, Tracy Nadine Elberg, who I mentioned at the beginning, I wasn't drunk, the horse was. But no matter how ingenious or the deception or the self-deception, 
I hope we've seen tonight, it doesn't work. You just can't do that with our God. It won't wash. Nothing, we're reminded by the writer of Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So let me say again, if you still haven't seen this scandal in yourself yet, this is the challenge for you tonight. Stop confabulating. Step back and look at yourself a little bit more clearly. And then you can join David as he says in verse 13, the sober truth, the matter-of-fact truth. I have sinned against the Lord. But there's another scandal in this chapter. There is another scandal in this chapter. It's the scandal of God's mercy. And therefore, there's another challenge. The challenge this time, have we followed David in embracing and experiencing the scandal of God's mercy? I wonder, have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? or, Or if you have, are you continuing to do so? Or have you kind of lapsed a little bit? in your belief in that. Perhaps you're holding on to to guilt and tormenting yourself with regret, uh, thereby holding yourself back uh, when it comes to things like prayer and worship and service. Or, or, and this is what the chapter points us to, are you clinging to the Lord Jesus as he bears your sin and punishment and as he breathes new life and hope into you. Because if you are, if that's you, hear refresh the word of the Lord through the prophet tonight. The Lord has taken away your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to begin by confessing how, how easily uh, we deceive ourselves, how we uh, reconstruct the past to make ourselves look better. Uh, we pray that you would convict us of that. Help us to see our sin more clearly, we pray. We pray for a simple, a simple and matter-of-fact confession before you. We also pray tonight, though, that you would show us afresh the scandal of your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray for a, a wholehearted belief in that, like the one that David shows in this chapter. One that's uncompromising in believing what you say when you say our sin is taken away, as we were singing earlier, that our transgressions are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so we pray that we would believe that and believe it wholeheartedly. We pray that that would then result in us praying more boldly, serving more boldly, and worshipping you more boldly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.